Number three, God's Mission, fourth quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start lesson three, God's Call to Mission, on the quarter on God's Mission, My Mission. And Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Keith is going to offer our opening prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given to each one of us. We thank you for minds, Lord, that enable us to think and to understand, and especially to understand the truth about you that sets us free. Lord, bless us as we look at mission and as we minister to each other. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is the third in a series on mission. And in the first two parts of this series, we took a look at mission from God's perspective, that God is the original missionary in the garden and in other places. And for the rest of this quarter, we will focus more on mission as from our perspective. What is God calling us to do? How can we best cooperate with God in accomplishing this mission? So going to number one, I mentioned previously that Genesis 12 seems to be a key text for several lessons in a row, not because one writer necessarily was enamored with the text, but because various writers felt that was the right place to start their particular lesson. And so we've been taking Genesis 12 apart sort of in three different packages here. So let's do that again. Once again, we can read Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Last week, we went forward. So how did Genesis 12, 1 to 3 get worked out in Genesis 17 and in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, etc.? How did it all get worked out over time? This time, we're going to go back and see how Revelation 12 connects with what has come before in the book. With that in mind, let's read the text. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right. So Abram is called to leave his land. And the Hebrew word there is ha'aretz, which is a very popular term for Canaan, Palestine. Leave his relations, his family ties. The Hebrew word there for you know, the tribal relationships. And to leave his home, the word base. You know, Bethlehem means house of bread. So Beit, B-E-T-H in Hebrew, is the word for house. So he's to leave his physical house, leave his country, leave his family, and go to a land that God would show him. Now, the immediate context of this in the book of Genesis is the Tower of Babel. And we don't often connect those two because we're aware that they're probably at least a thousand years apart. And so we don't see the connection, but in a literary sense, the two are connected, as we will see. So let's go to the beginning of chapter 11 and read verses 1 to 4, for starters. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. All right, so here we see them seeking to build a big tower. And the question that would immediately come to mind is why build such a big tower? And I think what is often the thought is, well, they were trying to build a tower so tall that they would survive the next flood. Notice they didn't believe God's promise that he would never destroy the world again with a flood, but to build a tower that is so high that they would be safe in the next flood. Now, that kind of doesn't make 100% sense. I mean, don't they realize that if they really had that goal, they should have found the highest mountain in the area and built the tower there. If the tower doesn't go over the mountains, then it's not going to defeat a flood that goes over the mountains. So interestingly enough, when you look at the book Patriarchs and Prophets, which comments on this, it says the problem with the tower was not that they were trying to defeat the next flood, but that it became a source of pride, a defiance of God's promise, and simply a demonstration of humanity in opposition to God. So that's a bit of a different spin on the text than the one maybe I learned in Cradle Roll. So Rita? I'm just wondering whether verse 2 isn't perhaps the most significant, as it says, as men moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. My understanding that moving eastward is the metaphor for moving away from God. So they were moving further and further away from God till they got to a space, place, big enough themselves to build their own city. Yeah, I did find that interesting because Shinar, I think, is generally understood to be between the rivers where ancient Babylon was, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. If the ark came down in the mountains northeast of Babylon, then traveling east wouldn't get you to Shinar. I think that's something I want to explore a little further. I don't have an answer for it right now, but it is interesting they were heading east. Now, east tends to be the place where the sun rises. So if you're thinking in the context of sun worship, heading east might not be a positive thing, but it is also the place from which God often works. So I'm not 100% sure whether the reference to eastward was necessarily symbolic in any way. Daniel? It's interesting that God asks humanity to fill the earth, and that is repeated after the flood. And instead of filling the earth, they decide to settle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a direct defiance of God. That's right. And of course, the interesting thing is that God does not destroy the tower. So that indicates that the construction of the tower or the height of it is not the main issue. And they want to make a name for themselves. And they indeed receive a name, Babel, the gate of confusion. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that in the Babylonian language, Babel means the gate of God. So this was a counterfeit, in a sense, of what the language should have done. So Daniel points out that the reason given in the text for building a tower is 
to make a name for themselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Both of those would be in defiance of God. All right, Bob? Are we pretty sure that Shinar is on a plane where Babylon eventually existed? That's my understanding, and I don't have the evidence for that right in front of me. Yeah. But if Shinar is where Babylon is, then heading east would imply that they had already moved off of you know the Ararat Mountains, which is sort of north-northeast of Babylon. So, yeah. Henry also mentions in the chat that the purpose of the tower is not to avoid the flood, but it's not to be scattered and also make a name for themselves. So you have here a contrast between human pride and a humility that listens to what God has to say. Praise from people, let's go to make a name for ourselves, rather than praise from God, and a focus on this life rather than a focus on eternity. So the tower then represents humanity after creation and now after the flood humanity which is in defiance of god and seeking not to cooperate with god in contrast to that of course is abraham who is in relationship with god verses five to nine the lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built and the lord said look they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. I guess that's your answer, Bob, that Shinar and Babel are the same place, at least within the story. And you notice that human beings have a tendency to cluster. People like to be with like-minded groups. And that's why I think this story, in part, is in this lesson on mission. Because mission at some point at least requires at least some people to uproot from where they're comfortable, to go to another place where they're sort of out of touch, where they're not really connected. And so, interestingly enough, by intervening to confuse the languages, God forces them to scatter. You know, they can't make sense with each other. They need to separate in order to communicate. And interestingly enough, we will see later on the book of Acts that, in a sense, God forced the Christians to scatter. They didn't willingly take the gospel to the world. They didn't willingly do what we shall call mission. But God arranged affairs in such a way that mission happened. So we mentioned earlier on that mission is, first of all, an initiative of God, and then second of all, a receptivity of particular people groups. Those are two sort of foundation stones of successful mission. Michael? I noticed that it says, let us go down and see what they are doing. It's plural. So who is God speaking to? Is it the three persons of the Trinity, or is God speaking to angels, or who are the we? 
Well, in historically, this has been debated for hundreds of years, thousands of years, uh, you could say, because even the Jews before the time of Jesus were wrestling with that. If God is one, how come he says we? And one obvious answer to that would be that kings often use what's called a plural of majesty. When they say, we say to you, do this and so, it's because the king represents the whole nation. So there is a plurality in the pronouncement of the king. So that's one way that people uh, could interpret that. Uh, obviously, many Christians have interpreted these as hints of a trinity. And the clearest hint of God as more than one is going to be in next week's lesson. And we'll, we'll cover that when we get to it. A very surprising turn of events in Genesis chapter 19. So people like to cluster in like-minded groups. And mission is calling us not to be totally comfortable, but be willing to move uproot, go in a different direction from where we've been before. Now, I'm suggesting that the call to Abraham actually is a summary statement of everything that's gone before in the book of Genesis. And we can see that with the concept of blessing and curse. In the Hebrew, you have blessing and you have curse. And of course, those words have meaning in today's world, and therefore we often may impose our own meanings on the biblical text. But essentially, blessings and curses are the consequences of a covenant. So, for example, if you make a deal, I'm going to do this job in 21 days, okay? And the person that you're working for may put into the contract saying, okay, for every day, that is delayed, you will get less money for this as a motivation for performance. And so the curse of the covenant is if you don't get done in 21 days, you're losing money day by day. The actual payment will get less and less. The other side to it is if you get finished in 18 days, we'll give you so much per day for getting done early. And so those would be blessings and curses in the covenant. Your performance determines the consequences. It's not an arbitrary thing. It is simply that we want this done in 21 days. And if you exceed that, you'll be rewarded. And if you fail, you will be penalized for that as a consequence. So in Genesis 3, you have the language of curses that are there. And you also have blessing. So with Adam and Eve, there was the thorns that came in. There was the childbirth pain. There was the nakedness, et cetera. These were some of the consequences of their sin, the negative consequences, but there are also positives there. There's blessings. God promises, Genesis 3.15, he promises deliverance. He makes coats of skins for them. So there's a positive and there's a negative that comes in, blessings and curses. In chapter four, Cain is cursed. He has to go away from his family and reap the consequences of his sin. But at the same time, God blesses him. He puts a mark on Cain so that no one will hurt him. God gives him a positive as well. When you get to the flood, the curse is the flood, the destruction of the then known world. The blessing is the ark that God provides. So when you get to 11, it's pretty clear what the curse is, that the consequence of their pride and their defiance of God is to be scattered around the world through the different languages. And the question comes, where's the blessing in the Tower of Babel? 
And the answer is Genesis 12. Within the storyline of Genesis, Abraham and the Tower of Babel are counterparts. That what God calls Abraham to do reflects all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 1 and verses 26 to 27. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is what Livius mentioned last week, that there's some connection between Genesis 12 and the early part of the book. You see in Genesis 1, three relationships. Adam and Eve have a relationship with God. They have a relationship with each other. And they have a relationship with the earth. When sin comes in, the relationship with God was broken. They become afraid of God childbirth pain is introduced and they begin fighting with each other. There's a break in the relationship with each other. And then thorns and earth's resistance to Adam are a consequence also. So the three relationships of Genesis 1 are broken in Genesis 3. In the light of that, come back to the three promises to Abram. They function directly on the basis of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. God promises blessing, relationship with him, restore the relationship between humanity and God that was broken in Genesis 3. And instead of a land that resists, God gives a land where they can prosper, the land of Canaan. And instead of the childbirth pain and the break in relationship, God promises Abraham many children and nationhood, etc. And you remember how last time those three promises governed all the way through the Pentateuch, all the way through to the book of Deuteronomy. God promised Israel the land of Canaan, that God promised them relationship established at Mount Sinai and in the sanctuary, and God promised Abraham many children, which was fulfilled in the nation of Israel. So the entire Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible, are a unified whole centered in Genesis 12 and verses 1 to 3. So essentially what God is doing when he calls Abraham is inviting him to restore the Garden of Eden. That through Abraham, through the line of Abraham, through his children, God would recover what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is a really critical passage for the entire Bible, but particularly for the five books of Moses. And it's, in a sense, God's first call to mission, which is why it's here in this third lesson of the series. Abraham was the first person called to mission, that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Rita. Yeah, it's that uh, verse three that's something's just struck me about that, too. God saying, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I'm wondering if that last bit, all peoples on earth, they are the ones who will be blessed. Are they not the ones 
who will be on the earth made new because everybody else, anybody else who is not for God would have been cursed and won't be there. So the ultimate thing is that all peoples on that earth made new will be blessed because of Abraham. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the initial sense, this is referring back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, a restoration of what was lost to humanity at the Garden of Eden. In the more extended sense, though, from the New Testament perspective, it's Jesus is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. And so the seed of Abraham ultimately is centered in the work of Jesus. And it is through Jesus that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The connection, I think, is very strongly there in Galatians and other places of the New Testament, that God, the mission to the Gentiles was already there in Abraham. And I like the way that you phrased it, that how people respond to Abraham determines the blessing of the curse. Carrying that out further, how people respond to Jesus is ultimately the determination. Will they be safe to save in eternity? Depends on how they responded to the gospel in Jesus Christ. Depends on how they responded to increasing awareness of the character of God. So, yes, I think Genesis 12, in a sense, is foundation text for the whole Bible and its approach to these issues. Larry? There are several other versions of Genesis 12, 3 that imply that both the people themselves will be involved in this, whether they do the blessing to themselves or they bless others. And so I was thinking about Isaiah 60, where and the kings will come to you and want to be blessed the way you're blessed. And part of God's mission for Israel was that as others saw how they were blessed, they would willingly of their own come to find out why that blessing and that involved something active on the part of the children of Israel as opposed to just being something that was active on the part of God in the future. Yes, I think that when you work your way through Scripture, you tend to see this now and not yet, that there's an immediate sense in which each of these is activated. But as you move through the Old Testament and then as you move into the New, these things tend to keep being extended and extended further. So there's an immediate uh, and there's also a wider meaning each time. All right, let's go to number three. And it says there to read Genesis 12, 10 through 13, 1, and ask questions, what things happened to Abram as soon as he arrived in the land God showed him? Was going to Egypt a mistake? What do you think would have happened had Abram not gone to Egypt? All right, let's read these passages together. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, 
oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. So first of all, famine in those days was a double whammy in the sense that on the one hand, obviously, if you don't have enough food, that's not a good thing. All right. That's a real concern. But it's more than that. It was an agricultural society. The wealth of nations depended on the quality of the agriculture. And that's why Egypt and Assyria slash Babylon were always superpowers, because they had rivers running through them, even when it didn't rain, and it almost never rained in Egypt and rarely rained in Mesopotamia. But it didn't matter because there are vast quantities of water coming through for irrigation. So these nations always had a surplus. And the other nations that were dependent on rainfall, which wasn't always that reliable in that latitude, therefore it was up and down. And Canaan was one of those places where you had to kind of look to heaven in order to survive. And so when it says there was a famine, not only was that a lack of food, but it was a financial disaster. The primary engine of the economy in such a place would be collapsing. Today, agriculture is maybe 1% or 2% of many nations' economies. Back then, it was 80 or 90%. So it was an economic disaster, as well as people going hungry. Abraham, of course, doesn't come out too well. And by the way, you notice the mention of Sarah and her appearance, etc. A little side note that you might enjoy is the word that they used when they went to Pharaoh and praised her looks. It's the same word as hallelujah. It's a Hebrew verb in the emphatic that is where you get the word hallelujah from. So they were praising her in that way. So what's the point here? The point, I think, is that following God in mission doesn't always mean smooth sailing. Almost immediately after God calls Abram, after he reaches the land, a famine ensues. And he's now challenged, should I stay? Or should I go? I went all this direction to be where God wants me to be. And then everything is falling apart. So following God doesn't always mean smooth sailing. If you go to number three in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 130, it says, in concealing the fact that Sarah was his wife, he betrayed a distrust of the divine care. And I have a question for you to ponder. When is taking care of yourself a distrust of the divine care? When is arranging for your future a distrust of the divine care? Is life insurance a distrust of the divine care? How about retirement planning? Shouldn't we just depend that God will take care of us? What about buying a security system for your home? Is that a distrust of the divine care? Sean, what are your thoughts? How about basic honesty? I think that Abraham repeatedly represents 
distrust of the divine care in his attempting to coordinate through interesting means, including dishonesty, what he was interpreting God's will for him was. So I would include, yes, these practical matters, but these more internal matters that lead to a demonstration of distrust of the divine care. So you don't have a problem with retirement planning or life insurance. All right. So (laughs) Abraham, then, he doesn't come away looking very good in all of this. What does that tell us about God? God looks at the whole world and picks out a missionary, and he turns out like this. All right. I would like to say that I think it's a betrayal of divine trust when we don't buy life insurance. And when we don't buy health insurance, when we don't use penicillin, because I believe that those things are something that God has trusted us with. He's given us a society that allows us to have that capability. And we certainly should not put all our trust in those things. But to not use them is not using what God has given us to help us. That's how I see that. All right. Appreciate that. Michael. This story, which is similar to other stories in the Bible, in that we get Abraham with warts and all, all his failings as well as his attributes, which I think gives verification to what is being told here. Other mythological gods and creatures and so forth, it's always praising how wonderful they are and so forth. They don't have any failings. But this shows that Abraham, even though chosen by God, was a human being and suffered the same kind of trials and tribulations and failures that the rest of us do. So why would God put all these flunkies in the Bible becomes the question. What are we learning here about God? You got basket cases here, David, Peter, Judas, etc. Anyway, just some thoughts here to stir us up a bit. Terry? Well, one thing I noticed, and it popped into my mind when Michael was talking, but then when you followed up too with what you just said, God calling all of these imperfect people to be missionaries for him. I see God continuing to work with them and not cutting them off, particularly after their first failing. God didn't come along to Abraham and say with this experience with Sarah in Egypt the first time, you didn't quite follow my instruction. So out with you, you're done. We'll go on to somebody else. No, God kept working with him and helping him and teaching him. And it shows that I think it goes directly to at least one of the accusations against God's character, that he's not trustworthy or that he's not vengeful. So God's consistency in working with flawed people helps us to see that he's not arbitrary or vengeful. Yeah. Rita? Well, after the fall, he had no option but to work with flawed people. None of us can ever be perfect or fully mature in our knowledge and understanding of God without God showing himself to us and his Holy Spirit working in us. So, you know, he has no option but to work with flawed people. And if it was documented otherwise, none of us would have feel as though we had any hope. One thing we tend to do is write missionary memoirs in which we talk about these great heroes, you know, who went to faraway lands and difficult places, etc. And I think there's something to be said for that. Encourage people that serving God is a beautiful thing, etc. But sometimes we tend to put people on a pedestal and say, if you went out and did that, you must be really awesome. And yet the Bible shows 
that such people are, are as flawed as everyone else. But God can use them. Lou. I'm very thankful that God has included all of the warts and the bumps of the different Bible characters because it gives me courage when I flub and do something or act or react in a way that is not the way I should be, that God is just loving. And like Rita said, he didn't have anybody else except flawed human beings to work with. So God is just so much more inclusive than we are, so much more loving, so much more forgiving. And he doesn't give up on us when we goof. He's just there to help pull us up. And he never seeks to condemn, it says, but to redeem. I think that's in Mount of Blessings. And I love that. John 10, 10, the thief sent to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they might have life and more abundantly. Iris, you had your hand up. I think others have covered it so beautifully. I can only testify from my own life that it is actually those moments when God speaks to us and asks us to trust him on a new level that our faith build in categorically different dimensions than when we are sailing smoothly, apparently having control over our life, that, which is really an illusion. But I think it is in those moments when he really asks us to make a step by faith that we have the opportunity to experience him more fully. And after coming through on the other end, we know God experientially in ways we haven't known him before. And so it's also interesting that he takes Abraham back to exactly the same situation, gives him a new opportunity where he flunked before. So it's amazing to see how gracious God is. What I hear in your words is the idea that in mission, God is working two ways at once, that there's two purposes for mission. One is for the missionary, that it invites someone to go deeper with God in some ways that no one else may ever get, and that God is working with that missionary, growing them, preparing them for even wider service in the future. At the same time, God is working with those who are being reached. So that expands mission beyond just, you know, we're going from here to there. But in a sense, as we're mentoring disciples, we are being mentored by God with new understandings and new features in the journey. Lou. In the world of invention, we learn by our mistakes. Look at Thomas Edison. And God, he just works through our mistakes and can make them become blessings and learning experiences of how full we are of ourselves or whatever lessons we need to learn. So I'm very grateful that in our mistakes, he can make them, like they say, make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> All right. Larry? Possibly trusting God in the context that we're discussing here has been the hardest thing I've ever had to learn. Not that I have fully learned it, but the person that Christ mentioned who clearly didn't trust God was the foolish rich man who tore down his barn just to store more of what he had. And there's some interesting comments and discussion going on in the chat about being stationary and moving. And I think the human tendency is towards the comfort and security of remaining stationary. So I think the tension and the balance in life is living at the access point on the pinnacle to be open and accessible to God's influence 
requires in our fallen nature some level of uncertainty and therefore movement because it's at those points when Abraham doesn't know what tomorrow's journey is going to bring that he is reliant upon God. We forget we are in a fallen nature. God didn't design us this way. He designed us to live a little differently than what we are doing. That's a good transition from part three to part four of this lesson, where we take up from the Abraham story and go into the book of Acts, because a very similar thing happened there that happened at the Tower of Babel, that some events occurred that seemed human events, yet at the same time, God used those events to fulfill prophecy. The prophecy of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts 8 and verses 1 to 4. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. All right, so interesting little piece here. With the stoning of Stephen, there was a tremendous persecution that came out in the church there. And it says Saul was going from house to house, dragging off Christians and putting them into the prison. But there's an odd detail here. It says a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Why, when persecution scatters the believers, did the apostles stay? How is it that the leaders are not persecuted and other people are? What is going on here? Sean? Well, my thought stems from verse 4. Not so much uh, why some were scattered and some weren't, but those who were scattered preached the gospel. So it may be that the circumstance of the scattering, God was able to take advantage of in a way that he wouldn't otherwise have been able to. But here's an odd piece. You go back to chapter 6, and the apostles say, don't distract us with waiting on tables. Our mission is to preach the gospel. And so the deacons were chosen to wait on tables, but they ended up preaching the gospel. And Stephen was one of those deacons. And so it's interesting that the ones who were designated to preach the gospel stay in Jerusalem. The ones that were not designated to do that scatter abroad. So there's something really odd going on here. And I want us to think about it a bit. Henry. I can only speculate on what was going on, right? Because the story doesn't say. We only know that the apostles didn't run away. It doesn't give the reasons. So my only speculation can come from Acts 1.8, when the instruction says that they need to be witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and onto the utmost part of the earth. So it doesn't say, well, when you finish here, then you move there, and then you leave this place, and then you move. So your assumption is you still have something to do. <laughs> and you see that people is going away, and if you trust, and you know that he was crucified in there, 
that you will run the same risk, but you haven't finished what you have to do. So I have a conflict of thinking that we need to move or we need to stay. And I think that this is circumstantial. In the case of Abraham, he needed to move, obviously, because the world wasn't that populated at that time. But the Adventist church has been moving, right? At the beginning, we were trying to have missionaries going all over the earth. And now we want to have them in here because we are not growing as much as we would like in here. So I think this is why they were not leaving. But here's the fascinating thing, Henry. I like what you're saying, but it was the apostles to whom Jesus said, Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So it almost seems like the apostles are not following through on what Jesus told to them. So this is a fascinating thing going on here, and I think it will bring us to a very interesting place. Livius. Isn't there a prophetic statement where X number of years were appointed for Israel? Or something like that. And then they were supposed to go out like they were supposed to start at the house of Israel and Jerusalem. And then I think, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Well, in Daniel 9, there was a prophecy of Messiah's coming, that he would come at the beginning of the 70th week, that he would be crucified or at least cut off as the Hebrew language in the middle of that week. And that at the end of that week, then judgments, abominations would come as a result. And I think the way that Adventists at least have interpreted this is that the stoning of Stephen was that end of the week. It was maybe three and a half years after the crucifixion that, in a sense, God drew to a close the ministry to the religious leadership, the ministry to Jerusalem. Right. But still the apostles stayed. Stayed, yeah. Yeah. All right, Michael. Well, the apostles had received the gift of Pentecost, and they were the central part of the church. Maybe staying there was an important aspect of the early church, because if they'd been scattered, what would have happened? And we don't know because we don't know what happened. We don't know that story other than what did occur, what it related in Acts. But like you mentioned, there's no explanatory comments there. Well, thank you for wrestling with this together, because I think this is how learning takes place. You have to first wrestle with it, and then it helps us to say, you know, there's got to be something here. And if you go back to Acts chapter 6, there's something that happens here that I think is fascinating. In Acts chapter 6, in verse 1, it indicates that there are two different groups in the Jerusalem church. In those days, it says in Acts 6, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right. So there was a dispute within the church. There was a division in the church between Aramaic-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews. These were not Gentiles, but they were Jews whose primary language was Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the language of Jesus, Aramaic. So the 12 gathered disciples together and, you know, said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. The fascinating thing, he was talking, I think, to the Greek Jews choose among you. How do we know? Because the seven deacons, so-called, all had Greek names. 
The apostles were Jewish, Hebrew Jewish, Aramaic Jewish, and the Greeks were complaining that they were being overlooked by the Hebrews, the apostles. And so they added to the apostles seven individuals with Greek names. Perhaps the Greek Jews were one-third of the group. And so you now have a group that could represent the Greek-speaking Jews to the apostles and to the wider church, that they would be treated fairly. Now, with that in mind, Stephen was one of these Greek-speaking Jews. He was the one who was martyred, and when the persecution happened, it seems most scholars think the persecution fell on the Greek-speaking Jews that Stephen was representing, that the deacons were representing. And so Philip was another one of those deacons, and he's described as leaving at this point to share the gospel in other places. So you have a division between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews, and it seems that it was the Greek-speaking Jews that were particularly being persecuted at this point. So the people that Saul was imprisoning were, I think, the Greek-speaking Jews, and so the rest of them left town to get away from this persecution, and Paul follows them to Damascus afterward to seek to find even more. Who were the Greek-speaking Jews? They were the ones best equipped to reach the Gentiles. They were the ones who already spoke the language. They were the ones that understood both the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture. And so what happened with the stoning of Stephen and the persecutions of Saul, that the people in Jerusalem best equipped to take the gospel to the rest of the world, those were the ones that were driven out. And the apostles, representing the Hebrew-speaking Jews, they continued where they were. They were not in the center of Saul's target, apparently. So that, I think, helps to explain this odd piece. And it shows that what God did in allowing this persecution forced the church out of its comfort zone, forced it to follow the commission. Rita? And you've kind of touched on what was going through my mind, is that perhaps it was just almost purely political. Could it be that... If they, Saul and the like, were to go after the apostles, the followers of Jesus, that they might have been afraid of a serious uprising against them because they'd kind of seen the effect that Christ had had. That's what they were afraid of. They were afraid of an uprising against the power base of the Pharisees. So if they went for the softer target, of the Greek-speaking Jews and left the Hebraic, Aramaic Jews, the native Jews, if you like, to those in Jerusalem and in, in that area alone, then the apostles would stay there because they weren't under any threat. Well, it's interesting that some early Jewish writings indicate that James, the brother of Jesus, was a very famous person within the Jewish community of Jerusalem, that he was seen often in the temple and was highly respected. So what you're saying makes some sense that the apostles were understood to be Jewish, but the other elements of the church were more troublesome, it seems. Michael? Were the Greek-speaking Jews were the audience for which the Septuagint was originally composed about 100 years, 150 years before. I would say that's correct. Not necessarily these particular Greek-speaking Jews, but yes, the Septuagint was done in Alexandria, Egypt, for the sake of Jews who could no longer read the Hebrew or the Aramaic Targums that were available. 
So they needed a translation into the Greek language of the scriptures in order for them to function. Now, the question is, did the apostles stay? Obviously, because they could. But were the apostles themselves reluctant to go out to the uttermost ends of the earth? And does that maybe encourage us that even these giants of the faith struggled with the kinds of issues we struggle with today? was how to reach our neighbors, especially when they are very different in their thinking. We'll look at two texts here. First is Acts eleven nineteen. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Interesting. So this gives us an additional piece of what we learned in chapter 8. Yes, the persecution resulted in scattering. It went beyond Judea and Samaria, went all the way to Syria and Cyprus and so on. But it says they still spoke only to Jews. So the division in the church was between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. It was not between Jew and Gentile as such. They were all Jews, but some of the Jews had lived elsewhere than Jerusalem and perhaps came to Jerusalem as the holy city, you know, to get closer to the temple and so on. But they were recognized to be foreigners within Judaism. So in Acts eleven nineteen, even after the scattering, there was not a great deal of eagerness to go to the Gentiles. The other text is Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12. Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12 gives us an idea of how the apostles thought about Paul's outreach to the Gentiles. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. Right. So Peter himself was very reluctant to go all the way in reaching the Gentiles. It was Saul. Paul was the one who broke that barrier and began to go to Gentiles directly. And that was particularly when he was rejected in synagogue after synagogue in his first missionary journeys. He says, all right, since you have rejected this, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going straight. And in many of those synagogues, in what we would call Turkey today, in many of those synagogues, you had Greeks who were not Jewish ethnically. They were Greek-speaking, but they were also Gentile in upbringing, etc. And these loved Judaism, many of these. And they were attending the synagogue, but they didn't become full members, so to speak. And these were the first missionary target group, if you will, among the Gentiles, were those Gentiles who were attracted to the synagogue, but never became Jews as such. And that was the initial target audience. And you can understand why synagogues were constantly upset with Paul, because let's say you have a congregation of 100 people, and 60 of them are Jews, 40 of them are Gentiles who are attracted to Judaism. They're your target audience. Paul comes in, reaps off 10 of the Jews and all of the Gentiles, and suddenly your synagogue's half empty. Probably not the most popular thing somebody could do. So we see that the apostles themselves were very slow to embrace the mission, and they struggled a great deal. Even Peter, who had the vision of the sheep, do you remember that? Where God says, don't call anyone common or unclean. 
God called Peter through that to go and speak to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, the first major Gentile to come into the church. So Peter, rather than Paul, was the one that actually got it started. But Peter himself struggled to understand the implication of what God was doing here. We tend to marginalize people we don't know, especially if they look different than we do. Henry. Sometimes I think that, again, we continue to struggle with the idea of a group that is supposed to be the one taking the gospel. And we imagine through the text that Paul was the first one going to the Greeks. But if I remember when Jesus was alive, John tells this story in chapter 12 that there were Greeks looking for Jesus. And they go to, I think it was Philip, to make the connection. And when I read the books of Paul, he goes to these new places and finds people worshiping God in certain places and joins them in the worshiping place when he goes out to the river and finds people in there. So I feel that the mission, again, is God's, and he's accomplishing it through ways that we have no idea. And the record only tells us the struggle for human beings that believe that they have it clear. And the record is only showing us that we don't get it clear, but it's God the one that has it completely clear and is not giving up in anybody. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Let's go to number six. We will skip over five for the sake of time, but we just summarized that was Peter having the vision of the sheep and saying to God, you know, what's this all about? And God says, don't call any person common or unclean. And so he goes to meet with Cornelius, who is the first representative of this tremendous harvest that was about to come. Question number six, which do you think is harder to witness to your own family, neighbors and friends, or go overseas? to a very different culture. What do you think? Which of these is harder? Michael? I think it's your own family and friends. That's a tough crowd to convince. <laughs> Why would they be me, tough? Well, they've known me for years and years. And I have friends that I've known since I was a, a kid in grammar school. And I could hear them saying things, don't give me that kind of BS. We know who you are. And in fact, Jesus ran into the same thing when he reads the scripture to them in the synagogue and says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And they don't stand up and say, gee whiz, the Messiah is here. They try to kill him. So I think it would be a tough crowd to convince. So Michael makes the point that in a sense, it may be harder to reach your own family because there's no faking it, right? They know you better than you know yourself. They know all of your flaws, etc. If the gospel is in any way tied to you as a person, it's running in deficit from day one. With missionaries, on the other hand, you go to a foreign place, it's easier at home because you know the language. It's easier at home because you know the culture. So it goes both ways. Being at home is easier in some ways, but it's also challenging in others, especially when you are very much known in that community, when your church is very much known in that community, and there's a whole history of grievances and whatever that may have occurred through the years. But at the same time, when you go to another place, learning a new language, learning to meet a new culture, et cetera, those are challenges as well. So it isn't so much that it's hard in one place or the other, it's difficult either way. There are special challenges. Yeah. Rita. I think it should depend on your method of discipling, which we were talking about before. And if 
we, each of us as individuals, is fully immersed in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, fully immersed in the character of God that we have learned through our association with, through beholding Jesus, then we should be discipling in our lives. So that ought not to matter where you are. All right. So I have observed through the years that Adventist churches have a great difficulty with the neighborhood. For example, a church that I pastored in New York City, there were members in that church from as far away as 37 miles. There were plenty of Seventh-day Adventists living within walking distance of the church, but only two of them were actually members of that particular church. The rest of the members came from scattered places all around. And so to say that the mission of that church is the neighborhood where the building was placed was a very big challenge. That church, it was foreign within that neighborhood. And one of the things I tried to do as a pastor was to have programs that would reach the neighbors. In other words, advertise the most in the blocks just around the church and to do things like nutrition programs, weight control, smoking, etc. We even did one on UFOs, which was a hot topic at the time and had people walking into the church from the neighborhood for the first time in many, many years. It's challenging. The, the biggest foreign territory might be the people that live within walking distance of you. And that, I think, is something we need to attend to more and more. The people that are closest to you are the Jerusalem from which you start. Uh, Darla, you had a comment to make. There's a saying that if you're in pain and you don't have that pain transformed, you'll just transmit it. Jesus once accused the Pharisees of making their converts twice the son of the devil than they already were. So to be a real missionary in your community, you need to be in the transformational work of your own life, honesty, and all of that, because otherwise you're just going to make someone twice the problem person you are yourself. Fascinating, yes. And there's a tension there, isn't it? In a sense, Few people grow in faith unless they are sharing their faith. On the other hand, if what you're sharing is a mess, your results will be a mess. So how do you grow your own faith at the same time you're seeking to grow others? It's sort of an integration back and forth. I was in a country on the continent of Africa, and in that country you had a coastal region and you had then a mountain plateau. And the mountain plateau was full of Seventh-day Adventists. They had resonated very well with the various constituencies up on the plateau, and there were hundreds of thousands of members. But in the plains, there were 11,000 Seventh-day Adventists. But every one of them was what they called upcountry people. They were not from the coast. They were not related to the coast. In fact, in that coastal region, there were 40 tribes that were all Muslim. And the Adventists in that region had churches and churches and churches, but were totally foreign to the 40 tribes who actually lived in that region. So when it comes to this mission thing, I think, as some have already pointed out, Michael particularly, it's tough to reach your neighbors. It's tough to reach your family. That's a huge challenge, especially when they know you well. So I think from the Seventh-day Adventist perspective, and I suspect it's similar with other denominations as well, often we bring people, track people from a wide variety of places, but the very neighborhood around the church doesn't even know you're there. And a question each church can ask is, if this church moved five miles over to some other neighborhood, would this neighborhood miss us at all? All right, Larry. Your observation about your 
experience as a pastor was interesting. And several times in my past, I felt compelled to try and bring people who were not Adventists to our church. And I soon stopped doing that because it occurred to me that the transformational process of a human being takes a long time. And most communities are not ready to allow people the length of time it takes to make the transformation. So if I'm working with you or you're working with me, as the case may be, it seems to be that it's more important for me for you to begin to change how you think and still be comfortable going to where you're getting your spiritual blessing. Because if you were to try and make the transformation and you wearing jewelry and you smoke and you drink and you eat pork rinds and all of this other thing, and I bring you to my Adventist church, you're going to have a gross amount of discomfort long before you ever start to get a blessing. And I think that's part of the struggle that our church has in trying to reach non-Adventist people. So, and I appreciate your willingness to share a little bit of that, but I think that's a dilemma that is faced continually. Now, if your church is scattered over a 37-mile radius in a city of 20 million people, each member's target audience is where they live. But then bringing them 37 miles or 15 miles or so on to that community. So one of the things I've suggested in some of my writings is the idea of subcultures, that every church needs subcultures where people who live in a particular neighborhood may connect with other Christians or other Adventists in that neighborhood and create a group that actually cares about that neighborhood. They can still go to church 37 miles away if they wish, but the mission is not likely to happen 37 miles away, you see? So forming subcultures, and in a sense, Pine Knoll is kind of one of those subcultures, gathering people with a common purpose, seeking to do a unique type of ministry. So these subcultures are places where people outside the church can become acquainted and learn and grow together with a group of church members that may in the end end up with a church in that particular neighborhood, but it would start much smaller than that. Livius. So the church, I have a little bit of an experience I wanted to share. And I think the church as a organization, as a body is like, it's up front. That's kind of the first thing that somebody would interact with. And I think that it's important, but I remember I teach Sabbath school at my church, and I've been sad several times because certain individuals have moved away. And I think when you have an interpersonal relationship with the people in that church, and you mentioned a subculture, a community, take Sabbath school, for instance, it's a group of people, 10 to 20 to 30, maybe, depending on how big your church is, maybe even less. But you begin to have a relationship with certain individuals, and they kind of represent, you know, they're your community. That's what's critical, I think, is the individuals that we come in contact with and the interpersonal relationships that are critical because the corporation, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, it's just a big entity that you know some people can get lost in. And I know for a fact that I'm sad when certain people leave the church because you know I have a connection with them. Well, the church institution is a tool yeah. that God can use to put out a much bigger message than could otherwise possibly be done. When I think of the Loma Linda community, this is the Adventist mission on a huge scale and would not be possible that any one of us could duplicate that mission on our own. But having this giant institution has its own 
witness and its own message. So there's usefulness in organization, definitely. But when the organization means we don't have to take personal responsibility, then it can become a negative. All right, Henry. And I would also like to stretch it even a little bit more because today in our world, in the society that we live, sometimes church is not a tool, but it's a laster because of what religion has done. And then it's more difficult even to attract people if you use that concept. So I think this is the beauty of this family, this group, when we are looking for non-traditional ways that do not have the luster, that do not create the barriers, that can open up the missionary field in different ways that does not necessarily have to be dependent of the organization that will create a barrier for some that have been hurt by the institutions. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying, Henry. My wife and I just visited Japan. And in Japan, we were told over and over again, Japanese people don't go to church. Japanese people see the church building, it's the last place they would go into. So you have a dilemma there. You either learn to go outside the church to reach people, or you find some way of bringing them in. And what one pastor did was open up the church every Sabbath afternoon for the kids in the neighborhood that had no playground. It was an urban area in Tokyo. And the kids came pouring into the church after we had our potluck dinner. And they were playing kickball and stuff in the sanctuary. That would really bend some feathers in a lot of places. But the church came to the conclusion, we will die unless people in this neighborhood start seeing us as a place that's actually positive and can function for the community. And the pastor said, these children, when they grow up, are not going to be hostile to church buildings. And if nothing else, that is a start. And so, yeah, the church building, as you were saying, Henry, the institution can be a barrier as well. It's a tool, but can also be a barrier in some people's minds, and we need to be aware of that. All right, last word, Michael, and then we need to close. Years ago, Bill Loveless, when he was pastor at University Church, asked me an impression that I had as a non-Adventist, and I just recently started attending that church with my wife, and I said, my impression is that it's isolated and insulated, and that there's a world out there around Loma Linda that you need to reach. And with passage of time and more introspection, I came to realize the same thing could be said about the parish I belong to in Ukaipa, St. Francis Cabrini, that we were an island kind of isolated, insulated. And certainly the people who attend church on a particular Sabbath are devoted. They firmly accept the, the precepts of the Seventh-day Adventist church. The real struggle is how do you reach the outsider? And I don't have any magic answer for that. Yeah, appreciate that testimony, Michael. And that's why I think we're doing this series for this quarter to wrestle with these very questions. Uh, the lesson is a challenge at the end, and I've listed that in number seven. Two challenges for this week. One would be identify a people group in your community that the church has not made efforts to reach. It might be uh, another denomination of the Christian faith. It might be some non-Christian religion. It might be secular people who don't go to church at all. But identify a people group in your community that the church has not made efforts to reach. And number two, pray for an opportunity to engage people who belong to this group. And one thing I've learned about God 
is God can put you in touch with people you wouldn't expect. Could be somebody that you walk past on the street. It could be somebody that sells you something in the hardware store, etc. To be open to what God might want us to do in relation to people that look or act or believe very differently than we do. That's the challenge. And we invite God to go with us in that challenge. Let's pray. Lord, you promise to be with us always, even to the ends of the earth. Like the apostles, we are reluctant sometimes to engage in that commission, whether it's next door or around the world. So I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and provide opportunities that surprise us to engage with people that we might never have met otherwise. We trust you, Lord. You love people more than we could possibly imagine. And you know exactly who might benefit from getting to know us. So I pray that you would be with us as we seek to carry out this mission that you have given to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.